to come stand in front of you guys. I hope you guys are well this morning. Take your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, as you turn there, I just want to um, remind you as a church family, something that we started it's about a week and a half ago now. Uh, we were, um, actually I was in the middle of a, um, a live stream and uh, <laughs> the idea kind of struck me. We should be praying. Uh, we should be praying about what's happening in our world. We should be praying um, about this um, virus. We should be praying about how um, other people are working through trying to find solutions to this thing. And so uh, in the middle of that uh, live uh, Facebook live thing, I said, let's just stop at 2.13 every day and let's pray at 2.13. And so I encourage you to set an alarm on your phone, on your watch, or wherever you set your alarms now. Uh, and at 2.13, wherever you are, when that alarm goes off to pray. So uh, this week, uh, God challenged me a couple of times. Uh, in fact, one day I was here in the church, in the sanctuary, and I was on the lift way up in the ceiling and my alarm went off at 2.13. And so I got to pray, close my eyes. And as I closed my eyes, being 20 feet above the ground, felt myself doing this. So I'm committed. I want you to be committed. I think it would be amazing if this spread throughout our community and if we're in grocery stores or wherever we find ourselves, which isn't a whole lot of places right now. At 2.13, we start hearing alarms go off and we all start praying. So let me encourage you, be a people of prayer and be praying for folks like that. So hopefully by now you've found Mark 13. I'm going to slow down a little because I'm talking like 100 miles an hour. Um, before we jump into this very difficult, complex uh even controversial text, what I want to do is just take a moment for those of you who are joining us on a live stream who maybe don't go to church. I want to address something very important that if we miss this today, then I've actually missed the most important aspect of what scripture talks about. I'm going to refer to another passage. You don't need to turn there now. You can look later. But in the book of Luke, chapter 13, same number, um, somebody asks Jesus, about the situation that happened in their current events. It's like their news broadcast of the day. And they came and said, have you heard the story about how Pilate mixed the blood of people that he had murdered with the sacrifices? Um, and then Jesus responded to that. And, and really what, what you find in that story is the people were inferring that they believed at the foundation of their philosophy and worldview that those who are evil, those who are sinners, are the ones who get affected by tragedy. And Jesus walked through masterfully in Luke chapter 13 and says, listen, it's not because they're sinners. Everybody's going to die. You just haven't been aware of your mortality to this point. But now that the unexpected happened, not only did these people get massacred on their way to do sacrifices, but also there was a story of towers that fell on people and killed some people, which we're somewhat familiar with in our country. And Jesus said, listen, it's, it's not because they were greater sinners. It's because we live in a broken world. And folks, as you look around, what you realize is we are seeing the effects of living in a broken place, which is a result of our sin coming into the world in Genesis chapter 3 through Adam and Eve. So, so, so tragedy and sickness and death are all things that we deal with, just pointing to the fact that we live in a, a broken place. And, and, and though we used to be able to ignore death, right? Isn't that kind of the way we played? Like we were immortal? Like day in, day out was going to happen regardless. I mean, nothing horrible would happen to us until tragedy strikes. And in that tragedy, what Jesus said in Luke 13 was, stop judging them as being greater sinners than you. But instead, consider your own heart. Consider where you stand with God right now. He said, 
in a world that is so very broken, you're going to die. That's just an eventuality for all of us. So be prepared and repent. So what did he mean by that? He meant change the way you live. Stop depending on yourself and your own morality to be considered a good person in God's eyes and instead come to the conclusion that God has already come to, that you are a sinner and you are separated from God and there's nothing you can do about it yourself. And if you die in your separation, you die forever separated from God in a place called hell. I hate that hell exists. I wish I didn't have to talk about hell. I hate taxes too, but they still exist. Even though, you know, the, the deadline's been extended to July, right? That's awesome. The deadline's still coming. And if you don't live a life that's prepared to file your taxes by, I think it's July 15th now, then you're a fool. And the same goes for this place called hell, just far more drastic. The only answer to our separation, the only answer to our brokenness is found in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who lived a sinless life. And he, and he died on a cross, not for his sins, but for yours, as a substitute for any and all who will accept him, his death as a payment for them. That's where our hope is. So today I want to talk about hope, but I don't want to get to the end of our time giving you false hope. I talked about that last week. I don't want you to get to the end of this message and be like, oh, that was such a nice little speech. That's so great. I feel so warm and fuzzy now. It's not a universal hope. It's only a hope for those who have humbled themselves and fallen on their faces before Jesus and said, Jesus, you're the Savior. I'm not. And I need you. Hope is only found in Jesus Christ. So as you listen this morning, that's what my hope is for you, that you find what is real hope. Okay, now Mark 13, without question, a difficult text. You read commentators like this is the most difficult text in the book of Mark, and I get to do it while preaching to the back of an iPad. So I can't wait. Um, let me start reading in, in verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read pieces of it. And Mark chapter 13, verse 1. I should probably get to Mark and not Luke, or else I'm really going to confuse us all. Mark chapter 13, verse 1 says, As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And, and that's the right response. I mean, the temple complex was, was glorious and amazing. It was something that, that any foreigners would come in and be like, I have never seen anything like that. And, and any people who lived in that area would, would take great pride in it. And that's what seems that the, the disciples are doing here. They're taking huge amounts of pride in, in this glorious complex of a temple. Teacher, look! Look at how massive these stones are. Look at how glorious it is. It shimmers and the gold is shining so bright it blinds people as they enter into the city. It's this, this glorious, magnificent place. What impressive buildings. And Jesus says in verse 2, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Um, Jesus went really, really dark on them. They were all excited and he said, no, no, this place is going to be destroyed. And obviously it got into their heads because look at verse 3. While Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, which is east from the temple, across from the, the temple, they could see the temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him this question privately. Tell us when will these things happen? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples asked, when is this going to happen? And what will the signs be that it's coming? 
And what Jesus does, he answers the signs question first. He says, you're going to see wars. You're going to see earthquakes and famines. You're going to go through unquestionable and unprecedented persecution. There's going to be this moment called the abomination of desolation. It's a moment that defiles the holy of holies in the temple. It's spoken of in Daniel. I believe it's chapter 7. And Jesus warns about false messiahs coming in, false teachers coming in, those claiming to be this deliverer who's, who's come to save them. Jesus tells them the sun is going to grow dark until that moment when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, arrives with power and with glory. So Jesus says, there's some of the signs. But then in verse 32, Jesus answers the question, when? When is this going to happen? So chapter 13, verse 32, it says this. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, you be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. What I say to you is this, be alert. So let's deal with a couple quick questions. First, when dealing with the question, when will this happen? Jesus responds, I don't know. Now, how can that be? I mean, if Jesus is the son of God, how is it possible he doesn't know when this is going to happen? How is it possible that he is unaware of when the, the end times are going to occur? We need to remember that Jesus is, is fully God and fully man. Perfection in both natures. In order for Jesus to save us, he needs to be both fully God and fully man. If he wasn't fully man, he couldn't die in our place. If he wasn't fully God, he couldn't have defeated powers of sin and the grave. So he was, he was both. And because he was both throughout his life, throughout his ministry, what we see is flashes of both natures, fully God and fully man. So, so look, you, you see, it says Jesus was hungry. We can relate to that. That's his, his manness. But his deity, he was able to feed the 5,000. It says he was thirsty, but Jesus was able to turn water into wine. He was tired, took a nap on a boat, and yet Jesus was able to raise the dead. We don't have the record of any of Jesus' birthday parties, but we know every year he had a birthday. And yet he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here he doesn't know the day or the hour. And yet he's going to come with great power and great glory. See, that's the two natures of Jesus. They don't conflict. They exist simultaneously. So that's how it's possible that Jesus didn't know. He was willing to set aside some of his deity while he came to earth. Let me me hit this too. Verse 30 which I didn't read, but verse 30 says this, Jesus, in, after telling everybody the signs, says this, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things take place. So, so what does Jesus mean? Was Jesus wrong? I mean, he says this generation isn't going to die before all these things happen. What, what does he mean? What could he possibly be speaking of? Well, 
As you read through chapter 13 of the book of Mark, you need to remember that Jesus is speaking of two events. He's prophesying about two events. He's speaking about a far-off event, the return of the Son of Man, but he's also talking about a soon-to-be event, which is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. About 40 years after Jesus spoke these things, in the year 70 AD, Jerusalem was invaded by the Roman army. Now, now, now they set uh, up outside the city behind the walls as Jerusalem hunkered down in the city and tried to protect themselves and their residents. But while they were outside the, uh, the, the, the walls, people inside the city, the Jews, began this extreme infighting. They were murdering each other. There was, there was famine that broke out in the city, disease, even cannibalism. And then when the Romans finally crested the walls and came into the city, there were thousands of people who were slaughtered. There were so many Jews crucified that the Romans ran out of wood for crosses. This was a, a horrible event, which you can understand as you read Mark 13, you see the words of Jesus aren't just empty. This is talking about a time that had never been seen before. These soldiers came to the temple complex and they burnt the temple down. And, and as, as the temple burned, you remember it was, it was, there was also gold attached to it. It was fashioned with, with beautiful gold, immense amounts of gold. And the fire burned so hot, it is said that the gold melted. And when the gold melted, it ran down between the stones that created the temple complex. So when the fire was extinguished and the embers had cooled, the Roman soldiers went back to the temple complex and rolled every stone to get to the gold that had run between the stones. So when Jesus said to the disciples, I know this place is beautiful, but there's not a single stone that will be left upon another. They'll all be thrown down. They were seeing the, the near fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus spoke here in Mark 13, the destruction of Jerusalem. But then there's the other one that's going to happen in some time. It's the second coming of Christ. And these two events throughout Mark 13 aren't neatly separated. And our text isn't chronological. But, but, but what we need to remember is that what Jesus is communicating to the disciples here isn't a concern with answering their specific questions. But instead, he's concerned about how they're supposed to live while they wait for both events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of the Son of Man. And now, as you and I look at Mark 13, we have to consider what Jesus says about how we live as we wait for the one event that's still to come, the return of Jesus. Verse 32, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So let me give you a few lessons that I believe that Jesus is giving to us. The first one there out of verse 32 is this, simply stated, morons, don't be one and don't run with them. The problem is, as you look throughout history, there is a immense number of, I'll, I'll use the word morons, and I'll define it in a second, who think that they are smarter than angels and the Son of Man, because they can figure out when Jesus is going to return. Now, the term moron is this, is a fool who should and could know better. It comes from the Greek word moros, which means to be dull. Picture this, you have a pencil, you have a balloon. A pencil, if it's sharpened and, and being used the way a pencil should be used, can pop the balloon. But if you have a pencil that's never been sharpened, fresh out of the box, that's that, that flat surface and the balloon bounces on it, it ain't going to pop. That, that pencil is a moron. It should be able to pop the balloon because it can pop the balloon, but it's not being used 
to its fullest potential. And what Jesus is saying here is, guys, don't be a moron. I mean, when, when end times are discussed, too many people run to their calendars. They run to their calculators. They run to these magic books that supposedly give you every answer you want to know about when. And there have been countless dates assigned to the return of Jesus. Good news, the modern prophets have said that it's not going to be in 2020. It looks more like it's going to be 2026. I, I have no idea where they get their information. I can just rest assure you that if the sun doesn't know and the angels don't know, they don't have a clue. I mean, I don't know about you, but growing up, Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist. He had the mark of the beast on his head, right? And so that made him the, the Antichrist. And, and the reality is Jesus continuously throughout chapter 13 warns his disciples not to be deceived. He tells them to be careful. He tells them, we hate the tension of, of knowing that there's an answer and yet not knowing what the answer is. Our tendency then tends, we, we tend towards trying to find answers or create answers. And in so doing, we completely miss the point of what Jesus is saying here. The point of Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 13 is not so that people could figure out when. When you drift towards that, what you do is you overlook the command that Jesus has given you for while you wait for his return. So what does he want? Again, it's not to come up with a date. It's not to argue over how it'll all unfold. There's many different opinions, many different doctrines of theology out there that, that argue certain um, timeline of events. But that's not why Jesus did this in Mark 13. What he did in Mark 13 is teach the disciples that while you wait, you need to be busy. Look at verse 33. Be alert. You don't know when the time is coming. It's like a, a man on a journey who left his house. He gave authority to his servants. He gave each one his work and he commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. So moms, dads, you leave the house, you give your kids chores and you tell them we're going to be back. It better be done by the time we return and you leave. So I'm just putting it in modern vernacular and you leave. Verse 35, Jesus says, so be alert because you don't know when the boss is coming back. Kids, be alert. You don't know when mom and dad are coming back. You had better make sure that your work is done. But unfortunately, that's that's not what we tend to do as we wait for the return of Christ, is it? In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. They're sitting underneath his teaching before he ascends to the Father. He gathers them together one last time. And in verse 6, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, are you are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Is, is this the moment? Is this what we've been waiting for? And Jesus' response to them in verse 7 is, it's not for you to know the times of the periods the Father has set by his own authority. He said, you're worrying about the wrong things. Stop trying to come up with a date. Stop trying to figure out the calendar. That's not for you to know. This is what you need to know. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here's what you need to know. Stop worrying about the timeline. Worry about this. You have power and you have an assignment. You better get to work. You're to go and be the witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, now just for a second, step back. Think about this. Jesus is hearing, or sorry, the disciples are hearing Jesus say these things. It's like, we want you to go to Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem. Those, that's the place they just killed Jesus. We're probably not really welcome there. 
I want you to go to Judea. Okay, that's, that's home. They didn't like us very much either. Samaria. Well, we're not going to Samaria. We hate the Samaritans. And to the very ends of the world. So what, what Jesus is commanding them is there is not a place that exists where you are not supposed to fulfill the responsibility that I am giving you to be my witnesses. So go. Verse 9, after he said this, Jesus was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So think about that just for a moment. So, so Jesus gives them this instruction. You have power. Here is your assignment. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world, and then pew, Jesus is gone. And it says the disciples, verse 10, stand there gazing into heaven. Now, I can't blame them too much. I think I'd probably do the same thing as Jesus ascended before my very eyes. And they're, they're looking into heaven. And you get the sense they were standing there for a while like, now what do we do? And as they are gazing into heaven, it says two angels appeared to them and said, uh, guys, why are you standing here looking into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him go. So the message is this. Jesus says you have power and a responsibility. Go. And the disciples' response is, what do we do now? I'm not sure what we... Wh- do you know, huh? And the angels come and say, why are you still here? He gave you a job to do. Go get busy. So what about you? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him go. It's the same message for you. This same Jesus will return. Are you fulfilling your responsibility? What's keeping you from going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world? What's keeping you? I think for some of us, there was a distraction from the the, the task that Jesus had given us because we were distracted by minutia. Not, not, it's not yours to figure out the, the minutiae. It's not yours to figure out all the nuances. It's not yours to figure out all of the, the way the puzzle pieces fit together. It is yours to go and do what he's called you to do, which is to be his witnesses everywhere. Maybe another reason is it's just easier to be a spectator. It's, it's, uh, honestly, let's, let's confess that. Let's be honest about it. It's easier to come to church on a Sunday. Boy, we wish we could do that, right? We missed that. But it'd be easier to come to church on a Sunday, but kind of filter in with the herds of people who are getting their coffee and yucking it up out there in the lobby and then drift their way into the sanctuary and then sit in the seats and then sing the amazing songs with our amazing worship team and then sit there and laugh at the the bald guy who's telling terrible jokes. And then at the end of the service, walk out and have this adrenaline rush and just be like, wow, that was so good. I feel so good. Man, that was good. But that's being a spectator. Jesus doesn't need spectators. He doesn't need fans. He needs you to get into the game. He needs players. And he's called you to do the work of a witness. I think another excuse that we've used for why we're still standing on the mountain looking up to heaven with our mouths open is because we feel like we have no time or no opportunity. Um, If you're paying attention, I think God has pressed pause so you can have the time and the opportunity like you've never had before. What Acts 1 does for us by the angel saying, this same Jesus 
who has ascended before you is going to return the same way. This same Jesus is going to come back. Why are you still here? What that does for us is it makes it clear that the return of Jesus and our responsibility are aligned. So what are you doing with it? What, what opportunities are you taking advantage of? Are you, are you serving your neighbors? Are, are you knocking on the door of those people who surround you who are the most vulnerable right now and seeing if they have any needs? Are you taking advantage of the opportunity to engage in conversation from six feet away or more with that person who right now suddenly has become very well aware of their mortality? Are you discussing with them those things and explaining to them, listen, I know it's terrifying and I understand that, but we're all going to die someday. If it's not this coronavirus, it's going to be something. Are you prepared for that? You know, are you engaging in those things? You do understand he's going to return, right? And when he returns, just like the servant in Mark chapter 13, when he returns, will you be alert? Or will he find you sleeping? Hey, man, Frank, it's hard to focus on what he's called me to. It's hard to focus and fulfill my responsibility when things are so stinking bizarre. And I'll be honest, it is, it's bizarre. Every news conference, every speech, uh, every time the president speaks, every time Governor Hogan speaks, it fills me with this anxiety that I feel like I need to go buy toilet paper. Every time I hear they're going to speak, I don't know where it's going to go next, what's going to change. And you, you got to cling to the hope you have in Jesus. And again, let me be clear. I spoke about it at the beginning. This is available to any and to all who admit they're a sinner and they need Jesus. I mean, if that's not you, we'd be honored to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he did for you. We'd encourage you to reach out to us during this time of chaos and confusion. But if that is you, and you recognize that God has been gracious and merciful in your life, and he has forgiven you, and you've repented of your sin, and you're depending on Jesus to be the one who carries you into eternal life, then let me tell you this. You have hope. We know the end game. The, the, the intermediate right now, this story is filled with chaos and confusion. It's filled with ups and downs and change. And, and, and it's confusing and it's frustrating. But what you need to remember is peace isn't in the moment when things are going well. Peace is in our ultimate destiny. In the end, we're with him and it's, it's all good. Peace isn't our ultimate destiny. Peace isn't the absence of trouble. Peace is the presence of God. I and mean, we get all kinds of reminders throughout Scripture. It reminds us that grace is greater in our weakness. It reminds us that God is faithful. That, that, that there is a purpose for our lives every day. That there's wisdom available for us if we just ask. That there's power provided by Jesus, but there's, there's an even greater encouragement that God provides for us. And, and he reminds us that in the middle of life's most difficult circumstances, we have this precious promise, this precious reality. He's with us. We have the very presence of God, and that is what brings peace. You see that throughout Scripture and how God dealt with many of his people. Think about Moses. 
God tells Moses of his plan in the the burning bush that Moses is going to be the deliverer for his people to lead them out of Egypt. And when Moses hears that, he cannot believe it. He comes up with every excuse in the book. I can't speak. Who will I say? How does this work? How are they going to believe me? And he just keeps throwing excuses. And finally, God says to him, I will be with you. Peace wasn't the absence of difficulty in Moses' life. It was the promise of the presence of God. Joshua, the leader who comes after Moses, he stands on the brink of the promised land, the land that God has promised to give to his people for all these years. They are looking into it. They're about to cross over, but there's a single problem. The people who lived in that land didn't know that God had given that land to somebody else. And so now Joshua has to lead a very challenging group of people through what seems to be an incredibly difficult task, almost impossible. But what did God tell him? He didn't say, I'm going to remove all difficulty. There's your peace. He said, Joshua, haven't I commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Think about Gideon. One of the judges, the Midianites had been oppressing the people of God for seven years and it was so bad that the Israelites had fled into the wilderness and were living in dens and caves to escape the oppression. God calls Gideon of all people to deliver his people from the Midianites and Gideon's response is, wait, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the weakest in Manasseh and I am from the least in my father's house. I am the wrong guy. This is hard. I can't do this. And God doesn't say, Don't worry. I'm going to remove the task from you. I'll remove the difficulty from you. No, it remained just as difficult. But God said, I will be with you. Jeremiah. Now with all of Israel facing captivity, Jeremiah is called by God to be a prophet. And Jeremiah immediately tells God, I can't do this. It's too hard. God said, you need peace. So the peace is going to come when you understand that I am with you to deliver you. There's countless more, but you go to the disciples in Matthew 28. As the disciples are listening to the instructions of Jesus, they're told that they have been given all power and authority. So they needed to go into all the world and make disciples. That's That's a daunting task. It's overwhelming. It's difficult. I mean, didn't didn't Jesus know there was going to be great persecution? Didn't Jesus know there was going to be famine? Didn't Jesus know there were going to be wars? Didn't Jesus know there was going to be pestilence and disease? He did. He said, you can have peace in that task that I have commanded you to fulfill. Not because it's going to be easy. Because I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. It's just as God is always comforted and encouraged others with his presence. He offers it to you. You're not by yourself. You're not alone. You don't face the impossible or the difficult with your own strength or in your own weakness. We face this temptation to be immobilized by fear. Don't forget, God is with you. He's called you to a task and he's with you in that task. I'd encourage you to take time to pray, 
reflect and recognize and be thankful for the very presence of God in your life today, regardless of your circumstances. While we pray together, Father God, you have been so very good to us. I mean, you reminded us, even in our singing ahead of time, of your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Now, Father, as we face uncertain times, we know that we have a God who is faithful, who is good, and who is in control. As we consider the task you've set before us, you have called us to be your witnesses. And Lord, we have a unique opportunity in front of us. I ask that you would give us the strength and ability to be faithful at the task you've called us to. Lord, I pray for the one who is feeling fear, that you would help them understand that, uh, that you're with them. I pray that they would understand, as the psalmist said, that your rod and your staff guide them. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.